The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now in fast, a two-day rally for the ages. The major averages now up over 5% from their lows of the year. Entertainment, energy, autos, retail, chips, and more flying. But is this a head fake before another fade or a rebound you can believe in? Plus, let's make a deal. Twitter share soars. Elon Musk says he is reviving his deal to buy the company. Same price, same deal. But why now? What is the options market saying about today's development? And what impact will it have on the rest of the social sector? And later, Amazon puts a hold on hiring a hot and tasty pizza pop and a big bank bump ahead of Q3 earnings. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Jeff Mills. And as we mentioned, another strong day for the markets. The S&P and Dow locking in their best day since May. The Nasdaq up more than 3.3 percent. We'll get to all that in just a minute. But first, the latest on Twitter shares surging 22 percent after a more than three-hour halt. Elon Musk reviving his offer to acquire the social media company at 54.20 a share. His original offer, just 4% above today's close. David Favors got the very latest. Hey, David. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, listen, you, we were talking earlier the, uh, today as well. This was obviously a surprise. I think a surprise to uh, many investors, a surprise to Twitter's board, uh, and something Mr. Musk apparently took it upon himself to do yesterday in the evening when he sent the letter that we now have read uh, that has been filed as, uh, as an amendment to a 13D um, in which he said, OK, I'm uh, ready to buy you at 5420. Of course, that price was the price originally agreed to by the two uh, parties, uh, Twitter and Musk, back on April 25th, after, of course, he had taken a large stake in the company, talked about joining its board, then decided not to, and then suddenly made an offer, an unsolicited offer to acquire the company. And then after a relatively short negotiation in which he waived his due diligence as well, they reached that $54.20 deal, of course, Fast forward through, oh, a lot of very bad blood litigation. We were set to go to court on the 17th of October. And as I said last night, Mr. Musk reversed course yet again, saying, I will buy you for 54.20. Now, we're not quite there yet. And in fact, one can't blame Twitter for being somewhat circumspect, at least because his offer includes saying, drop litigation and I move ahead. But they're not going to drop litigation until they have everything actually signed that they want done. It doesn't mean they have to sign or come up with a new merger agreement. That doesn't seem to be the case. But they do need things like a solvency certificate to be signed both by Twitter's current CFO and then Musk. That has to be submitted to the banks. They got an, and, and, and a number of other things that go along with a closing like this. Typically, you would have one side reach out to the other. They'd reach a potential settlement of some kind here. And all this would have been taken care of. It hasn't been. We may, in fact, see the, the two parties in court, even, I'm told, perhaps tonight, although as the hours tick by, Melissa, it seems less likely that'll be the case, but perhaps as soon as tomorrow, to try to iron out these final details so that Mr. Musk can take control of Twitter. And that he can do very, very quickly. Uh, we've talked about the financing for the deal itself, some $13 billion coming from Morgan Stanley and a group of banks. They're going to be funding that. They do have a 15-day period in which they can market that debt if they choose to use it. Doesn't mean they have to. You can take a look there at uh, what we're talking about. All of that debt's going to cost them a little bit more because, of course, when they sign this deal up, 
well, the debt markets were a little kinder to a uh, credit like Twitter's will be, certainly non-investment grade, uh, and there are certain ceilings they agreed to. So, yeah, when they sell that deal down, whenever it may cho- they may choose to, they're going to be taking a haircut on certain tranches, certainly the $3 billion unsecured bridge loan. But ultimately, uh, Melissa, the, uh, I guess, somewhat surprising or very surprising thing is that we find ourselves uh, at this juncture because it did appear very likely we're going to court. Of course, Mr. Musk was supposed to be deposed later this week. Whether that figured into his last-minute decision last night remains unclear. Back to you. Well, the skeptics on this panel and in the control room back in Englewood Cliffs, David, would say that he did not want to be deposed at all costs, and this is why the deal is proceeding as it is. And I'm, I'm wondering also, could, was it an option for him to offer to close the deal at a lower price? And so, you know, saying I'm going to go back to the original you know, offer, it seems like desperation that he wants this to sort of move forward and, and not be deposed at all. You know, I, you, that is, is uh, as good a guess as any, Melissa, because you raise an important point. It would seem to, if he even recently could have had his lawyers approach Twitter, as many of us have expected would potentially be the case. It is often that we see uh, disputes like this about a contract uh, resolved prior to them getting to court. Uh, and so there has been an expectation. Maybe you'd say, hey, 50 bucks. Will you take 50? We'll get this all done. That didn't happen. Uh, and at this late juncture, even if there had been an, they had entered into some sort of negotiation around a settlement, he might still have been uh, deposed. So you may be right. It, you know, it's, it's not clear. Um, things had not been going well for Twitter, uh, for excuse me, for Musk uh, in court, as anybody who's been listening uh, to the various hearings or following it closely knows. Chancellor McCormick has uh, uh, has been somewhat skeptical about some of the claims uh, that Mr. Musk has made, not to mention uh, privilege that they claim for certain communications or communications that they were supposed to come up with that they have yet to. Uh, and so it may simply be that he saw the writing on the wall, that he didn't want to be deposed uh, and decided to move rather expeditiously and finally to get this deal done. Although we're not quite there yet, we still have to get just a little bit more done before it is official. David, thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you. You too. David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, You're one of those skeptics, Tim, who believe that Elon Musk did not want to be deposed at all costs. And I mean, the simple fact is he could have been asked about Anything, anything. And and I think there are a number of different corners of his world that this this could come up. And there's plenty of reasons why he wouldn't want to do this. The fact that he is not negotiating for some small improvement, even just a victory to show that he could do here. The the, the other cynical assessment I make of at least the comments I've read so far is, yes, I'll do the deal if you drop the lawsuit. David appropriately pointed out that there's got to be some formality that he needs to, to come up with. But how about just the line that says, if I get the financing? If I get the debt financing, it's a different world. It's a very different very credit world. Different. We just went through uh, where this would, uh, both what the credit would look like and the beginning of the price talk around that. Uh, that, to me, is still an out. Of course, he's still going to end up back in court. But, but ultimately, if debt markets change and you can't raise capital in the same way, you know, th- th- that's possible. By the way, look at how Tesla traded yesterday, right? I mean, you've got a case where um, it's, it's as if Tesla stock knew yesterday something was going on. Yeah.
Yeah, well, the point there would be is if they don't get the debt deal done and he has to provide more equity, the only source of equity for him that has to sell Tesla stock to raise the cash. And the other thing on the debt is that a lot of these same banks that are on the hook, at least for, you know, kind of raising this debt, had just gotten clobbered in this uh, Citrix LBO deal where this deal was done earlier in the year and then the market conditions changed. They were on the hook for it. So I have to assume that a lot of these banks who are also not in a great position right now, we've talked about some of this going on as far as what are some of the risks in the market right now about banks? I, I mean, listen, this doesn't, this is like far from over in my opinion. I mean, David's reporting is phenomenal, okay? I just don't see this thing closing up. The banks coming in, all of those equity providers, we saw all those texts, all those bros offering to throw in a half a buck or two sticks here, this, that. Those guys, given where valuations are and the right. comps right now, the markets and stuff, it doesn't make any sense to me. Even where Twitter was two days ago before this news started to really percolate up, it was trading almost 30 times 23 EBITDA. In this market, that's not a stock that people are buying. I mean, think about where the debt markets were. Think about where yields were when that offer was first made, um, Guy. And I know you know this because you have a mind like a steel trap, but the 10-year yield was around 2.8% compared to where it is now. So many things have changed in terms of the valuation of this company and also the financing. It makes you wonder you know, how bad, how scared was he about this potential deposition, right? And, you know, to, to go down this route. It's interesting about Twitter. I mean, you had people putting a $22 price target on this stock at points over the summer on fundamentals of the business. Now, here we are back at 54. It's incredible. A couple things stick out to me. What does it mean for Tesla? Tim brought it up and Dan's brought it up a number of times. By the way, Tesla's probably down 42% or so from its all-time high. So very quietly, that's a stock that has not been performing pretty well, number one. And number two, if Twitter is worth $40 billion, which I think is where we are right now in terms of market cap, I mean, I'm not suggesting Pinterest or Snap should be that, but they should be a percentage of that. And both are trading around 17. So maybe there's a trade just to play stock market a little bit on Snap and Pinterest in this environment. Can you impute this valuation of 5420 in any way, shape, or form, Jeff Mills, onto other social stocks? Uh, no, because I, I don't think that the market would pay that. You know, this is a very specific instance where Musk has come out and he's willing to pay a price that maybe made sense a while back. But if you do back of the envelope calculations at the deal price, you're talking about 75 times earnings. I mean, that is not what these stocks are trading at in the public markets right now. So um, there could be some impact. And I know we'll talk about this later relative to Twitter's ability to attract ad dollars and maybe how that bleeds into a Google or a Meadow or a Snap. So there could be some movement there. But in terms of saying, look, this is indicative of what the market's going to pay for some of these other social stocks. I just don't think you can do that right now. We'll have much more on the uh, impact, potential impact this Twitter deal could have on the rest of the space in just a few minutes. In the meantime, we do want to get to the markets. What a rally, a solid rally for a second day in a row. The S&P posting its best two-day gain since April 2020. The Dow climbing 825 points to close back above the key 30,000 level. That seems like a big number. It is. NASDAQ leading the way up more than 3.3%. All three indices up more than 5% from the year's lows hit just on Friday. Take a look at Treasury yields down again. The 10-year touching a low of 3.56%. But is this bounce off the bottom for stocks a move that will last? And I think a key, a key thing to answer is, do you think this move in yields? Do you think this move in the dollar 
will last. It, it is just so early to talk about a Fed pivot. Uh, we had some jobs numbers this morning. They call them the jolts. And again, those are the job openings numbers. Maybe a prelude to a payroll number on Friday that begins to give the Fed some relief. But remember, folks, everything we've heard from this Fed is that you're not going to see them, even if even if they were ready to, to actually pivot, they're not going to do anything in the short term. So uh, I, I just call this another one of the most fantastic trading markets of all time. And if you think about what we've had, we've had 17 moves of plus or minus 5% or five and a half percent. But we've had nine moves of nine percent or more, plus or minus. Again, moves up and down. We've probably had four or five uh, north of 12 to 13 percent. So it is a trader's market. There have been some very clearly defined ranges. Uh, technical and chart guys, and, and certainly our, our guys, Carter and, and Chris Verone, have, have had some great calls here. You've had classic head and shoulders. You've had 200 days been the stop line. You've had oversold conditions where markets bounce. I'm not saying it's that easy. I'm just telling you there's a lot more of this to come. Guy, at one point last week, I think you said you could walk in and see a 5% face-ripping rally. I mean, we saw that in the past two days. Maybe it's a few days off. But still, I mean, this kind of sort of violent reaction uh, to the drawdown that really illustrates these sort of bear market rallies and how strong they can be. Yeah, we're all sitting on a desk. Dan said similar. And listen, in our world, though, early is wrong. So we were early, um, but we talked about it on Tuesday. And one of the things that we pointed out, I think it was Tuesday night, that, look, you know, the VIX had traded up to 34 and change that day. You saw some really crazy interday moves. And that spoke to what I called bad Greek or negative volatility for you option players at home. And it's sort of stood to reason that we were setting up to be able to play the market from the long side, which looked brilliant until obviously Thursday and Friday happened. Now Monday and Tuesday happened. So this is a tough game without question, but I don't think it was out of the realm of possibility because we discussed exactly this last week. The question obviously that you're asking is how much is left and there might be a little more left without question of the upside. We're still in a very defined downtrend. Um, you know, we've seen the VIX trade down to the mid 20s. Maybe we needed to get there first, but don't be fooled. We talk about it. The most violent rallies take place in bear markets, and I'm pretty convinced we're still in one. Well, yeah, and Carter was on last night, and he was showing us the lines that he likes to draw, that downtrend that's been in place in the S&P 500 since January 2nd. To Tim's point, all the volatility that we've seen, but they really have been a series of lower highs and lower lows. And if you do just kind of the simple charting there, if you get back to 4,000 in the S&P, that is the 50-day moving average. And if you were to overshoot, that would be an 11% move from Friday's lows. And you overshoot up to the downtrend near the 200-day moving average at 4,200 or so. So that gives you a rally that was basically equal to what we saw from the June lows to the August highs there. And listen, could that happen? Of course it could happen. If this jobs number coming up on Friday is just, again, to Tim's point, shows that some of the stuff that the Fed has been doing gives them a little air cover. Then we get to CPI next week. Maybe that's not so hot. Maybe earnings, that when we get into the bank earnings in the next week after that, maybe they're not so bad. Did you see J.P. Morgan was up nearly 5% yeah. today? That's astounding. And J.P. Morgan did what it needed to do. It filled in the only unfilled gap in that chart going back to November 2020. So my point is we could have a similar sort of move like we saw in June and July into those highs. And then I've been saying this for about a week now. I would not be surprised if the Fed has some data that goes their way that in late October, a week before the midterms, when they have that November 2nd meeting just, just before that, we see a trial balloon floated where maybe Fed funds futures have already moved more towards a 
50 basis point rather than a 75 at the November 2nd meeting. And maybe they take their foot off the pedal. And maybe that is the thing that allows the market to rally. But I just want to say, you no, 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 no. Bullish, I, I mean, am not I, short. I, and I, and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm short dollar. <laughs> I'm, I'm short yields. I've been long some stocks. I took the QQQ short off last week. My point is, you got to let things breathe. I said it last week. You do not want to press situations where sentiment got so negative at a right. key technical spot last week. All that being said, I'm telling you, this market did not bottom before we had the recession. Short-term bullish, but extremely skeptical in terms of the role politics will play in, in the Fed's trajectory on, on interest rates. Um, Jeff Mills, I don't know if you buy that, I mean, or just the simple notion that maybe things got so bearish and that there's plenty of short covering to go around here in the past couple of days. And, and maybe we are sort of just, you know, getting repositioned into what will be a lot of news that could determine what the Fed does. Yeah, I think sentiment has to be part of it, right? And you see these types of moves in bear markets all the time. This is nothing new. But ultimately, I think it comes down to the labor market and what that means for inflation. I think that's going to be the key, whether this Fed pivot narrative is legitimate or not. It hinges on that. I don't think it is. You know, Tim mentioned job openings coming down. They're down 1.8 million from the top. The Fed wants to see that. But look at the quit rate. It's still really low. So there is tightness in the labor market that we're going to need to see come out to see any type of wage growth deceleration. That's really what what the Fed is going to look for before they're willing to blink. And the last thing I'll say just relative to trying to parse what's going on here, you know, we're not seeing the momentum spark off of the bottom under the surface. It's like, well, well, how can you say that after the last two days? If you look at the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 with two standard deviation daily advances, so these big moves to the upside, you're only seeing 10, 20% of names doing that. Usually off durable lows, you see 50, 60, 70% of stocks making those sorts of moves. So looking under the surface and trying to see whether that typical momentum spark is there, it's just not yet. So combine the technicals with some of the fundamentals I'm talking about, I, I still think the bulls have a tough case to make. All right, for more on this rally, let's bring in Kristen Bitterly. She's the head of investments in North America at City Global Wealth. Kristen, great to have you with us. What's your take so on this much. massive rally that we've seen over the past two days? So I, I agree with a lot of the comments that have been made. I think our overarching thesis right here is don't fight the Fed. And so nothing has materially changed in terms of their overall trajectory. The past couple of weeks have been very bearish. We've seen some oversold conditions. These types of tactical balance bounces are, are very indicative of what you see in bear markets. And in fact, eight out of the past 10 bear markets, we've seen bounces off the lows of 10% and not just one, but several. And so this is very common in this type of environment. But I think until we see any type of change in terms of the Fed's trajectory, they're very resolute. Their North Star is inflation, a target of 2%. And we don't expect any type of significant deteriorating employment conditions in the short term. So as long as employment's in check and inflation is nowhere close to that 2%, they're going to continue on this path. We were just showing um, what your sort of base case scenario was and that unemployment would be 5%, earnings growth would contract by about 10%. What, what, valuation, what are valuations in that sort of world? What, are, well, you know, what, what is the S&P 500 in that sort of world? Yeah, and so I think this is the biggest thing that we have to think about, kind of this difference between recessionary bear markets and non-recessionary bear markets. Our base case is actually we, we increased our probability of seeing a recession in 2023 up to about 70 percent. So that's become our base case because a lot of the tightening that the Fed is doing, both in terms of rate hikes as well as quantitative tightening, it will not flow through into the economy or into earnings for at least six and sometimes upwards of 12 months. And so, yes, we're calling for an earnings contraction next year of about 10 percent and additional downside 
downside to the S&P 500, we expect a lot of volatility from here. You could see some additional downside of upwards of about 10 percent. Hey, Chris, and it's Tim. So with that backdrop, though, allocating towards for clients over the long term, this is what you do. And, and how about this being an environment where if I have a checklist of things that need to happen, one of them is valuations need to trough. And I'm not saying valuations have trough, but we're 15 times forward on the S&P, depending on where you're bringing in that earnings estimate. That's not bad. Uh, and it's a long way off of where we were. At what point do you start nibbling here? Because there are great companies that are for sale right now. And this is one of the things, if you are someone who has a medium-term outlook or even a long-term outlook, being able to buy into this market, of course, creates opportunities. So the situations where we've seen throughout history that the S&P 500 has been, has declined by 25% or more, when you look at the one-year forward returns, if you look at the three-year forward returns, over a three-year period, there isn't a negative observation. And in fact, on average, you see returns in excess of 40%. And if you extrapolate that out to five years, you're seeing returns close to 85 to 90%. So as an entry point, I agree, there are a lot of good opportunities. And where we're positioned right now, and one thing I should clarify, we're not sitting this out on the sidelines in cash. We are positioned on the equity side as well as the fixed income side in quality. And so we're benefiting from days like this in terms of the bounce. But do we want to lean into those companies that have strong balance sheet and can weather the next three to six months. Kristen, thanks. Kristen Bitterly of City Global Wealth. Guy, what do you think a world looks like uh, with unemployment of 5 percent, earnings growth contracts 10 percent? What what are valuations like in your view? I think it's a market where valuations get to levels we saw. Obviously, I'm not saying financial crisis, but listen, S&P multiples have traded down to the low teens. I think it's reasonable to see an S&P multiple trade bottom out around 15 or so. And again, depending on what earnings you're looking at, 210, 220, you can do the math. It's an S&P that's lower than here. So whether the Fed comes to our rescue or not, the backdrop suggests that things are slowing and you shouldn't pay as much for earnings, which to me means the market goes down. Coming up, much more on the Musk Twitter saga. What could Elon closing the deal mean for the rest of the social media space? We'll get some answers, but first, shares of Micron in a New York state of mind. We'll bring you the details and the trade next. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money coming your way. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Micron jumping more than 4% today. The chipmaker announcing plans to build the largest semiconductor factory in U.S. history. Micron's new plant, which will take more than 20 years to build and cost up to $100 billion, will be in central New York. Governor Kathy Hochul and Senator Chuck Schumer on hand for the announcement. It comes as white, the White House floats rules restricting Chinese access to microchip technology. So... What do you make of all this, Jeff Mills? It's sort of a, a security theme here in terms of reshoring um, chip production and also limiting others from having our technology. Yeah, exactly. And I've talked about kind of the localization of the supply chain in chips before. You know, we own a stock like Applied Materials, for example. So, you know, number one, maybe things get more expensive. I know this is sort of a, a long discussion here, but from an inflation standpoint, uh, localization of supply chains, not only in chips, but elsewhere. Uh, keep that in the back of your mind. But like I said, AMAT at 11 times earnings to profitable business. Uh, I think that's interesting. KLA is another one, even ASML, uh, another name, more expensive, but higher growth. So I think if you're playing the long game, and thinking about the localization of these supply chains, which is going to continue kind of across the board, especially in chips, just given how important they are, there are names that I think you can play to take advantage of it. Yeah, I'll just say this as a central New Yorker, where they're proposing right. to build right this plant, it, it literally is 17 miles from my home. And, and you can't underscore how important this is to bring this sort of manufacturing back to some of these regions that have just kind of been decimated over the last few um, you know, decades or, or longer. And listen, you know, we talked about the CHIPS Act. Some people are like corporate welfare, it's this and that. We need to bring these jobs back. Like Deglobalization is happening as a matter of national security, a whole host of other reasons. And again, does it bother me that it's going to take 20 years to complete. You hear about how these phones are going to be made in Vietnam now. You know, once you have this infrastructure in place, it makes it so it can be a bit more modular here in the States. And I do think it's important, but I don't think it's anything that you go out and buy Micron for right now. No, in fact, I mean, Intel was getting all this support and they're going to go out and build and foundry this 40 billion, 40 billion there. I mean, this, this stock's been a mess. Um, so if you think about the semis and you think about, first of all, today's rally, I don't think semis really were that strong relative to where they should be in terms of an early cyclical recovery. So I, I wouldn't get too carried away. But, you know, there was a note out by Morgan Stanley that we looked at, which was around Taiwan Semi. And they said, hey, look, this thing at, at 2023 earnings is trading at about 12 times when it's five years, probably closer to 18. And that semis, you tend, you should certainly, you should, especially for folks like Taiwan Semi, you should be buying them six to nine months in advance of when that cycle actually is. So their argument is, look, at this point, very cheap to itself, very cheap to its peers. And this is a good place to be in this trade. And that's the one I would go for. That's, that's as, yeah. as bad as, as they go. The restrictions, though, in terms of export of technology to China will affect some of the semiconductors uh, negatively, Guy. I mean, we saw that in terms of NVIDIA. We saw that in terms of AMD as well already. And, and the, what the Biden administration is going to do will simply formalize what had been sort of floated before. Yeah. No, listen, we talked about this was a conversation we had, I think, last year around Intel talking about the only thing it really has going for it potentially is sort of like a homeland security play. And obviously that didn't pan out. Intel just made an eight-year low. So, listen, there was an analyst put a $45 price target on Micron after earnings. I think you fade this move to the upside. Coming up, the big tech hiring freeze showing no signs of thawing. The latest name putting a halt on hiring and what it means for the jobs market. But first, Twitter takes off. What changed for Elon so late in the game? We'll find out next. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. 
Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk making headlines after news that he's reviving his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. The stock halted for about three hours, but after it reopened, it surged more than 20 percent to close out the session at 52 even. For more on what the deal could mean, let's bring in Andrew Boone of JMP Securities. Andrew, great to have you with us. Um, Let's let's say this is finalized, it happens, and Elon Musk is free um, behind closed doors without the scrutiny of of public shareholders to do whatever he wants with Twitter, experiment with subscription services, you name it. Does that put pressure on the other publicly traded social media companies? You know, I actually think it benefits them. 85% of Twitter's advertising is brand dollars. So if I think about the companies that were most impacted recently by macro, think like YouTube, think Snap, I think those guys are direct beneficiaries of advertisers saying, okay, Twitter's really volatile right now. We need to go to someplace that's a little bit more stable and allocate dollars there. Andrew, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. What, what, what changed for Twitter from their analyst day of 21? I rail about this all the time because they talked about doubling revenues and, and getting uh, their, their DAUs uh, almost double as well. Uh, it's been a farce since that point, and it explains why the stock went from uh, you know, $90 down into the, the low 20s at its lows. What do they have to do to change this? You know, I think they're doing a lot of things that are right in terms of user engagement. That's been one of the better parts of the story over the last kind of couple of years. Um, On the advertising side, it's really about building out the marketing stack. So you need more performance advertising tools, really try to replicate what Facebook has built over time. And then the next question is, look, across all of social, how do you replicate what you had pre-IDFA, right? So how do you bring back the targeting before Apple made their privacy changes? And and how do you improve the overall return on ad spend for advertisers? Hey, Andrew, Jeff Mills here. So just a quick question relative to sort of the timeline of taking Twitter private and then relaunching it as a public company. I know I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse here, but I know they were talking about kind of a three-year time horizon. Do you think anything has changed there relative to what's transpired over the past couple of months and now some of the questions that exist relative to the platform? I think it's going to be all about execution going forward. And so if Elon can can have some success with subscription services, which would increase revenue visibility, the street likes that. If he can start to rebuild that marketing stack, if he can get Dow to reaccelerate in terms of user growth on the platform, all of those things would accelerate the timetable to come back to public markets, assuming the market opens back up, of course. Um, you know, beyond that, what else would slow that down? The exact opposite, right? If if he has trouble in terms of retaining employees, I know there's been multiple headlines there. Um, if there are bigger kind of privacy headwinds that have yet to drop, if Apple continues to turn the screws there, that may take longer. And so it'll come down to execution. Andrew, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Boone of JMP Securities. Um, Guy, what do you think? Do you think that, that uh, you know, Twitter, what's going on, maybe the chaos, the uncertainty will cause advertisers to go elsewhere? No, I, I think people want to stay. I, listen, I th- I've always thought Twitter is an extraordinarily powerful property and being underutilized and under-monetized. And obviously that was wrong for a long time, and here we are. So, no, I don't think advertisers are going to flee. There are only so many places they can go. 
I mean, my problem is, you know, how is, again, this is what we talked about at the top of the show. Something's, this has to get paid for in this environment. So what's the knock-on effect potentially to Tesla? And I'll keep coming back to it. Like, to me, if this goes through, it augurs, I think, negatively for Tesla, the stock. And again, if you're looking for sort of second derivative plays, I think Snap and I think Dan would agree. And or Pinterest on the long side makes sense here. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, but it's interesting when you think about Twitter's business. Very soon, we're not going to be talking about it. We're not going to have the transparency if this deal closes. And just to put some context, you know, 10 years ago, Facebook, Meta, went public. It had $5 billion in sales. That is what Twitter is expected to have this year. So think about how poorly they've grown that revenue base, how they've monetized those users. Their users have been stuck. They haven't been growing them. And when you think about the margin differential between, let's say, Meta at about 80% gross margin versus is Twitter where they are at 60 and not getting better. I mean, this business is going to be just impaired because the management and that plan that the whole team was looking at, the 2023 plan, when this news hit the wires today, that team's blown up. It's they, gone. They you know what I mean? Up. Yeah. So what I'm saying is like, this is kind of like a dead stick are right now. Are you also and I saying as a private company that it's even worse off because they don't have to, you know, this is a company that, that we're questioning what they're reporting as well, it let, is. Well, let's say this. Elon's if stock-based compensation is a huge part of like how these companies like incentivize people, this company is being taken out in a manner that, that is he's massively overpaying. He's double paying for that. Usually when you want to buy an asset like this, take it private. You want to retool it. You want to lever it up. You want to bring take it out at a higher again. valuation. And that is the incentive for the new management to come in. That's out the door. That's blown up. So to me, I think the service probably gets worse before it gets better. I don't know how they, they monetize it better if they're going to be losing users, which I suspect they will, especially if they're going to bring like Magatown back to the thing. So to me, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, you guys are snickering, but that's a real issue here. Well, I, I mean, the, the idea of less censorship okay, is, so is clearly one of his principles. Yeah. Well, you're wearing they your brought, Twitter jacket today, so you, you seem on board. It's a coincidence, oh, okay. by the way. Just, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's say they reinstate Donald Trump onto Twitter. Yeah. Would you leave the service? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I don't I don't need to be there for that. I'm not on Truth Social for a reason. I, you know, and no one other than like QAnon well, MAGA conspiracy. Him. You don't have to follow him at all. You don't have to see anything about Donald Trump or from Donald Trump on Twitter. And that is the beauty. Of I think Twitter. we're all. Why we, wouldn't we why were talking about in the break? It? We all use it much less. We don't really engage with it. I don't know how they monetize it. I don't see a lot of ads. I don't do micro commerce. I don't do. There's a lot of things that are e-commerce. I'm not doing that on that. So to me, if I don't find they just lost relevancy in general, though, I think is what a lot of us are saying. Yeah. I, I don't know that. For well, me, when it's not a publicly traded company, we're going to be talking about it far less. And I actually think okay. that actually hurts the relevancy within certain verticals also. That's okay. I buy that. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter's options, meantime, exploded in response to this latest twist. Mike Coe is here to explain where options traders think this deal is heading next. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so Twitter traded well over two times the average daily call volume, and most of that volume took place after uh, it commenced trading again late in the session. Now, most of the activity was concentrated in the weekly 55 and 54 strike calls, over 30,000 of the 55s, uh, about 16,000 of the 54s. So are, are call traders there expecting it's going to go above those strikes? No. Actually, this is a pretty conventional uh, trade that you will typically see in merger situations once there's greater certainty that a deal is going to close. Risk arbitrage participants will buy the stock and sell calls at the strike that are on or slightly above where the deal is expected to close, which in this case is 54.20. And what we can take from this is that they actually think that the probability that the deal is going to close 
uh, is quite high, better than 80% based on where the stock was trading before uh, it halted today and the activity that we're seeing now. Dan, you actually put on a trade? Yeah, I did. You know, and again, this was kind of maybe a bit cheeky, though, when the stock was trading at 52 on the close. I bought the November, so I have about a month and a half expiration 50 puts, and they cost about a dollar and a quarter. They break even down at 48.75, down about six and a half percent. And you think about the risk reward there. Again, we know nothing. David, again, has been doing some great reporting on this in the way the stock trades. It looks like the deal is going to close and what they're saying. But think about the, the, the peaks and valleys of this whole thing. Yeah. That seemed like relatively dollar cheap in the options market to me to make a make a play where if for some reason this thing's off, the stock's back at 40 and I'm risking, you know, uh, just a few percent of the stock price. Mike, just quickly, did you see much activity in in, uh, Tesla? Yeah, Tesla was the busiest actually all day, traded over 2 million contracts. And, you know, one of the other points I would just quickly throw out with respect to Twitter is that if it's a privately held company, think about the cost of debt capital. Interest rates are rising, figure six, seven percent. That's more than two billion dollars a year in interest expense if you finance it all debt on five billion dollars worth of revenue. To me, that's going to pressure uh, the economics of the business pretty materially. Wow. All right, Mike, thanks. Mike Coe. More options action. Catch the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, it's a bird. It's a plane. Nope, it's a trader. Triple play. The three names getting our traders attention tonight. How to play them straight ahead. But first, a tough year for shares of Amazon. And now the big tech company announcing a hiring freeze. We'll bring you the details next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon reportedly freezing corporate hiring in its retail business. According to The New York Times, the company instructing recruiters to close all open job postings for those roles in the coming days and cancel some recruiting activities. Amazon joining the ranks of several other big tech companies that have announced hiring freezes and cost-cutting efforts amid fears of an economic downturn. When will this show up in the numbers, Jeff? When? Well, this is sort of step number one, right? And I think it is starting to show up in the numbers. We talked about that 1.8 million job openings that have been lost. And I think this is part of it, right? Companies aren't firing people yet, but they're removing some of those postings and you're seeing it across the board. So that's step number one, but it's not going to be enough to get the Fed to change their course. So it's happening, but it's not going to affect monetary policy. I think relative to Amazon as a stock, and I've been talking about Apple, Amazon, Tesla, you know, Amazon's still 15% or so above those June lows. I think that that gets retained tested. But as a business, I, I think you have to consider Amazon on the long, long side once you get that capitulation. You've had the revenue mix shift, you know, AWS, Prime, advertising, now over 50% of their sales. So they're actually seeing gross margin expansion. That's the kind of stuff that you want in a business, I think, going into this economic and earnings slowdown. So, you know, wait for capitulation. The, the PE out in 2024 looks good in the low 30s. So this is a stock you can buy uh, once we test those June lows. You own it. Yeah, I own it. And, and look, the value is, is in AWS. And there's an argument that we haven't really heard enough out of AWS to get all that bold up on Amazon because of the same enterprise questions that at least is demand still there. I, I, this is one of the great stocks to be nibbling at. I, I think after this move, I, I, I still think you're going to get a chance to buy it back near that 105, 110 level, if not that 100, where I think is really where you should be diving in. Coming up, we've got a trader triple play for you next from Aunt Domino's heating up Ford and Overdrive in dollar store doldrums bring you the trades on these stocks and throughout Hispanic Heritage Month. We're celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line. I've been both very lucky and very blessed to be Hispanic and I wear it proudly. Being a Cuban refugee in the 1960s and growing up in Connecticut, 
One of the things my parents instilled me at a young age um, was a standard of excellence. Whatever you do, be the best at it. Work hard and great things will come. And if I could only give someone two pieces of advice, that would be it. Reach for the stars, we can all get there. Welcome back to Pass Money. We're back with the Trader Triple Play, digging into three of today's big movers. Up first, Domino's Pizza popping 4.5% after UBS upgraded the stock to a buy. Analysts there saying the company is poised to grow long-term, even amid macro headwinds. You know, Guy, I don't usually watch linear TV, but I watched linear TV yesterday and I saw a commercial, and that commercial happened to be Domino's. And what they advertised was 20% off of everything. Everything because prices are going up and they're trying to help the consumer. And I thought that was interesting, but I thought also pressure on margins. What's that linear TV, the thing where you have the clicker in your hand and yeah, you sort exactly. of scroll? Yep, that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's one I watch too, <laughs> oddly enough. Yeah, but yeah, you say to yourself, all right, is that manifested itself into price? I mean, the stock has gotten crushed, obviously, like everything else over the last eight or nine months. And I actually like this. If you go back to March of 2021, the stock rallied from 325. Look where we just traded down to. I think they're playing a little stock market here. I understand commodity costs and all those things are hurting margins, but I think it's in the stock. I like DPZ. I work there too, by the way. Oh, that's right. That's Flip right. Flip some mean dough. <laughs> the hairnet and everything. Next up, Ford shares. You can't unsee that, by the way. Ford shares revving up today, jumping almost 8% after posting updated sales numbers. Sales in September fell almost 9% from last year, but for the full third quarter, sales were up almost 16% from a year ago. Tim, you are long Ford. Yeah, and boy, this has been rough. And if you, again, back to some of these charts, this is, this is as classic head and shoulders as you can get. What, where that takes you from here is not guaranteed at all. You got these, these sales numbers came out. They were not great, although in some of their most important models, they were extraordinary. And they were quick to toot their own horn, pun intended, on their EV business, where they're now the clear number two, and they grew 197% off of a really low base. But they're annualizing at around 50000 The one thing that I will say that's negative here, and, and I have to point this out, we we think these stocks have priced in a lot of negative demand in terms of where, where the, both the economy is going and where the consumer will go. If you look at auto loans, and they're up 250 basis points from where they were when the stock was still um, getting you know, its butt kicked, and you have a dynamic where it's going to force them to eat some of that. And I think they're going to have to lower some costs at some point. Finally, uh, Dollar General sitting out today's broad market rally. Shares losing half a percent. One of just six S&P names in the red. Dollar General, the third worst S&P 500 performer today. Let's get to our own general uh -huh. for this one, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it sat, it sat out today, as did a lot of safe names, staples, et cetera. But, you know, this thing has outperformed 35 percent since May. So I think, you know, sitting out one big day, not necessarily the end of the world. And I'm still making the argument that consumers are trading down. You're seeing more people shopping at dollar stores, whether it's Dollar Gen, Dollar Tree. You know, they're selling 75% staples in terms of their product mix. So I keep talking about less discretionary relative to spending. So I still think the economic slowdown, the ultimate impact on the labor market, that's going to be a tailwind to Dollar General's relative performance. You know, his office looks better, but what happened to his tie? It seems like he decided to just completely blow it off. Jeff? Yeah. He's got the oh, vest going the on. Best yeah, the best guy. The I can't get it right. I can't get it right. <laughs> and then what happened to the plant? I guess you put it back in the lobby. The you plant got died. caught red-handed. The plant didn't make I told it. You, yeah, I told you it wasn't mine. I had to give it back. <laughs> I guess the razor's broken, too. Um, anyway, enough about Jeff Mills. Coming up, earnings season is just around the corner. What can investors expect from the big banks? Our General Mills has a hot take on that trade. More on that next. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of J.P. Morgan jumping more than 4.5% today. Analysts at Citigroup saying the nation's biggest bank could beat EPS estimates by at least 30 cents when it reports next Friday. Results helped by higher net interest income from rising rates. J.P. Morgan joins Goldman Sachs, Comerica, and Bank of New York, Mellon, on Citi's conviction buys. So, Jeff, what do you think of the call? Yeah, well, J.P. Morgan's a name that's underperformed. So if you, do get, if you do get a beat on earnings, then the stock probably will pop. But I think, you know, generally I'm still not so hopeful about banks if you're looking out, you know, say a quarter or two. I think we put this chart together. But, you know, just very quickly, banks tend to outperform when rates rise. So we've had this massive spike in rates. And we've had some bank outperformance, but not as much as you might expect. So my guess is once you see long-term yields start to peak, which I think that they are close to doing, the economy starts to slow. I think you lose that support for banks you know, this higher rate narrative that's been propping them up, kind of pulling up that relative performance goes away. So uh, I still would not be chasing this bank out performance here. Uh, Guy, are you optimistic about J.P. Morgan specifically? I mean, Jamie Dimon can come out on the conference call and say it's like a category four or five storm approaching, blah, 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 and it's all blown out of the water. <laughs> yeah, and the stock traded a two-year low the other day down a 104 and change, bouncing now. I mean, I think it can continue to rally in earnings Without question, in terms of valuation, it's probably as cheap as it's been since, I want to say, the financial crisis. I'll just add this. I was watching that linear TV thing the other day. I I switched on to Rip Van Winkle, the old dude that falls asleep. And I'm convinced that must have happened to me because clearly it's Halloween and Mills is dressed as one of those Wall Street bros with that vest because that's the only possible explanation for that outfit. Boo. (laughs) It's my fall Wall Street tuxedo. Or Jeff Melson really yeah, no, taking it's, the abuse. It's, it's, I, I kind of feel bad about it, it's but like not body bad armor. enough to it's, stop it. It's like a it. flak jacket. Um, uh, J.P. Morgan, Tim? <laughs> well, it's just the, every time I do the show from this office. I can never do it from this office again. That's the problem. All right. Well, <laughs> looking good. And, and J.P. Morgan, I, I'll tell you what, of all the banks, is looking better than the rest. The, the, it's been an unpopular trade, but banks have outperformed the S&P by about 15% in the last six weeks. Mm. So uh, I think, if anything, they're rallying on relief in interest rates. Up next, final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. No cracks on Jeff Mills, okay? Guy, go ahead. If if I didn't love him, which I do, I wouldn't do that. So, you know, he's part of the tribe. A PSX, stay in energy, sister. Jeff Mills. All right, take a look at LNG on the long side here. You know, you're looking for good charts in a tough market. I think this is one of them. It successfully tested that breakout level. Plenty of fundamental tailwinds. I think it goes higher. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Mike Coe made a great point about the cost of Twitter privately funding that debt. Listen, when I looked at November expiration, the options market saying there's about a 30% probability that the stock is below 50. The stock's at 52 right now, and less than a 5% probability is above 54. You sell that stock if you still own it. And, and, and I own a little bit, and that stuff is going out the door. Remember, you didn't have a lot of time, or you barely realized you've got two bucks to the upside here. Seller of Twitter tomorrow, uh, but I'm a buyer of Caesars in the long run. I think these these casino names you've, set, you've seen the EBITDA multiple cut by a third, and we're starting to get some breakout. I mean, you're holding on to Twitter for what? Two twenty? Yeah, forget Come on. it. Uh, thanks Out. for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. 
Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.